As I, as I say that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We are in the third chapter of Habakkuk. I am, I'm so excited to be here today. I'm so excited to be preaching the third ch- chapter of Habakkuk. And I better read the scripture before I just start preaching. Um, Habakkuk chapter three, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the synagogue. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth was full of praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashing from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were shattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling forth arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifts its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. As the flashes of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing, rejo- um, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the seas with your horses, the surging of many waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottedness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, the high, on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments, you may be seated. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that was a partial autobiography. He named it Surprised by Joy. He named it that because he called himself the most reluctant convert. That when God started getting hold of him, he tried resisting and resisting and resisting. But eventually the hound of heaven wore him down. And what he found as he dove into faith is he was surprised that it wasn't this stodgy, religious, 
powerless thing, but he was surprised by joy. Joy. You know something? If you spend enough time in God's word with a soft heart and in prayer, seeking the holy of holies to be in the very presence of God, you will be continually surprised by joy. We come to moment after moment where our breath is taken away at the deeper sight of our Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote these words, No soul that seriously and consistently desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. I've been excited for chapter 3 since I began this series. In fact, when I began this series, I mean, I wanted to go straight to chapter 3 because chapter 3 is where it's at. Chapter three is it's chapter three is the accumulation of all of the struggle that Habakkuk the prophet goes through. Chapter three honestly wrecks me emotionally. There is something that is unspoken and beautiful about praising God, even when from the outside perspective it seems you have no reason to. So often we praise God because we infer his blessing when it comes when we are in times of comfort and happiness, when things are going our way. But in times of frustration, of trials, of persecution, we will say, God, why are you punishing me? We know that Jesus said that we are blessed when men speak evil of us. We are blessed when we are excluded. We are blessed when we are mistreated. But when we are in the middle of these things, we wonder, is God punishing me? One of the revelations Habakkuk has when it comes to seeing God, truly seeing him, is that, is that he is shaking the nations. Chapter 3 tells us that God puts an unshakable faith in his children. And when he shakes the nations, they are not shook. C.H. Spurgeon said this, My joy has been put out of the reach of my enemies. My joy has been put out of the reach of my enemies. Habakkuk chapter 3, that's what it's all about. Taking our joy, that God has given us a joy that's out of reach of our enemies, our physical enemies. You can give away your joy, but people can't steal your joy. People can... Try to take your peace. You can give away your peace, but you, they cannot take your peace. You have to give it away. We can have a joy that is unshakable, a joy that is unspeakable. And that is Habakkuk chapter 3. The one thing that chapter 3 teaches us that when we, <coughs> excuse me, that we must live, how we must live if we are to have the joy of the Lord in this, that God is worthy to be, to be praised apart from his blessings. The word worship literally means to ascribe worth. If you only praise God because of what he does for you, then you will curse him if he doesn't pay out. It is the attitude of, what God, what have you done for me lately? So many fall away on account of this. In fact, I remember hearing about this Christian band, and most of their life, everything was just handed to them. So they inferred God was blessing us. Then they get to a point in which they were struggling to conceive, to have a child. And then they start concluding, maybe God isn't as good as we think he is. They have a transactional view of God. We love him because he gives me things. And the moment I feel like he's not giving me something is the moment they turn away. But truly, they have not fallen away. I believe 1 John 2.19 is absolutely right. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 
I think this is true for the vast majority of people who say that they are deconverted, ex-evangelical, or deconstructing. It is just God revealing the absolute truth, which is their heart was never with him. They seemed like they were with him. I often mention this. If you knew Judas, back when he was with the disciples, you'd say, hey, here's a guy. Here's a guy who has it. In fact, that moment when he says, um, when he says, when Mary takes the bottle of pure nard, breaks it on his feet, and he says, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. I've heard that just said in different ways of people who want to show how righteous they are and people admire them. They look up to them. If you knew Judas, but you didn't know his heart, but the Lord knew his heart and he was destined, destined to betray him. Their faith wasn't a saving faith. It was transactional. I trust, I love, I follow Jesus because of what he does for me. Not as done for me, and the difference makes all the and the difference in that wording makes all the difference. In what he's done for me, being that he's given his life for me, he has raised me up to be a co-heir with Christ. No, it's all about what is he doing for me right now. And what we mean by that often is we mean the comforts that either denied us or that we get. But the heart's lesson of Habakkuk that Habakkuk learns is that we can learn that God is worthy to be praised for who he is, not just for what he is doing for us. In verses 1 through 3, Habakkuk begins his, uh, begins his song of praise. I, I really toyed with today asking um, Josh if he could just come up with a song for chapter 3 and just sing it um, instead of me reading the scripture. And I decided, no, I already did that to him like this last like month. So I decided not to. He begins this, uh, he begins chapter 3, um, in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigagoth. Now, I don't know if I even pronounced that right. I looked at it like five times. It is a, it's an interesting word. What is a Shigagoth? The plur, it's a plural of Shinagnoth, and it is um, the, um, yep, in this, uh, the singular form. Each appear in the Bible just once, both the singular and the plural. The plural is in Habakkuk 1.3. And in the title of Psalm 7 mentions the synagogon. Um, since no one really knows what either of them actually is, the translators left the word untranslated, giving the transliteration instead. The prophet Habakkuk um, introduces his closing song this way, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shinagoth. The ESV says, according to the Shinagoth. Instead of on Shinagoth, the title of Psalm 7 says, a synagogue of David which he sang to the Lord considering Cush a Benjamite. So all that to say, I don't know, neither do you, neither does anybody. They're just like, we're just going to leave it in there just like that. Um, verse 2, verse 2, verse 2 is so inspiring, right? Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh Lord, do I fear in the midst of years, revive it. You've heard of miracles in the Bible, and I trust you believe. You believe without seeing, and Jesus calls you blessed for that. But when you see miracles here on earth, you have, that, you have that desire, right? Lord, do it again. Do it again. Split the seas. Heal the sick. And it's not so much my faith is based on those things. It's that I want a new generation to see the wonders of God in the land of the living. And there's a big thing, though. My faith isn't predicated on that. If God never does anything miraculous in my whole life, it doesn't affect my love and my devotion for him. But I do have a desire as Habakkuk had as well. Do it again. Revive it in my day. Habakkuk prayed and he believed the Lord. But when, you, but when you've heard from God, 
he writes verse 2, and it's a song. Do you long to see the work of God now? I do. I don't base my faith on it, but I do have a desire as that mirrors this prophet's. I want this generation to know the God who does amazing works. Verse 2 is a change in attitude. Remember in the first two dialogues with Habakkuk, there are two complaints. He has a different attitude in his last song here. The rest of verse 2 shows a profound change in Habakkuk's attitude. The rest of the song will echo this. Why? What's changed? Habakkuk's initial complaint is, God, there's violence in Judah. There is, there, the justice is perverted. It's still being done. Justice is still being perverted. God says, I hear you. I'm going to destroy him. So Habakkuk's second complaint is, don't be too hasty now. Maybe, I mean, why would you use Babylon to destroy us? They're worse than we are. That's still happening. And God destroys them with Babylon. So what has changed? What, how does he go from lament to shout? How does he have such a change in his attitude? Because he's experienced God. He doesn't complain about God to others. He brings his complaint to God with a genuine, sincere heart. And he has a, a revelation of God in his heart that comes from God's word. He had an encounter with God. And having an encounter with God changes you. If I came in today and I looked exactly like the way I do, and I came in late, like 30 minutes late, like somebody had to like stall for me for a while, and I come up here, and your, your board members ask me, your deacons ask me, where have you been? And I'm like, you'll never believe this. I was walking down the street. I got hit by an 18-wheeler, fully loaded. And they're like, what? They're like, what, you mean you almost got hit? No, 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 straight on, splat, ran me over all 18 wheels. They'd say, uh, you're lying. And I'd be like, what do you mean? That hurts my feelings. How dare you call me a liar? Because I couldn't have an experience with something that powerful and remain unchanged. I couldn't have an experience with something that powerful and remain unchanged. So why is it do we have people who say they have a daily encounter with the God who made, let's just go small, Jupiter. Jupiter has a storm on it that's five times the size of this planet. And we have no problem believing he made that planet he made the sun. He made billions of stars, trillions of stars. But he can't change you. And that you had an experience with a God who can do all that, but you can remain unchanged. Because we are polite. We don't want to tell somebody who continues to live a debauched life that, no, you have not had an encounter with the living God. For if you had an encounter with the living God, you would have a different attitude towards your sin. So we don't want to say you're a liar, but honestly, though, you say that you're, you've met with the God of all the universe and you remain unchanged. That's a lie. Perhaps you, had a spirit, perhaps you had an emotional experience, but you didn't have experience with God, for an experience with God changes you. And it changed Habakkuk. He has went from complaining to rejoicing, even though nothing has changed, because he had an experience with God. The third communication with God, he tells God, in wrath, remember mercy. Look at that. That's not a complaint. It's complaint. It's not a command. It's not an accusation. It is a plea. It is the very plea I use when I pray for unsaved loved ones. God, have mercy. God, have mercy. He has this vision of God in verse 3. Verse 3 is the start of Habakkuk's vision of God. It is a vision of fear. Fear. 
He will go on and on that when God is on the move, you better watch out. Fear of the Lord is good. That is not to say it's a fear like the fear we have when it comes from a robber, murderer, or some evildoer. But it is a fear about the, how incredibly awesome God is, what he is able to do. At the end, at the middle of verse 3, we have this word Selah. Here's another wonderful word that we still have no clue what it means. After all this time, archaeological evidence, still have no clue what it means. So we just leave it in there transliterated. From context, the best we can understand and the closest we're going to get is this. Stop and consider. The Bible is not a book to finish. You know, you, you get me. It's not like one where I'm like, yep, I've already read that. I'm good. It's one to be meditated upon. It's one to stop and consider. What is the weight of what I just read? So let's sail right now. What have we just read in just those first two verses that Habakkuk has this vision and God of God. He says, oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Pernan, Selah. As I was reading, you notice the pause. I did three heartbeats in between each one. The power of God, verses four through nine. As I said before, encountering the power of God changes you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, I think I understood this most fully one time when I remember seeing a tornado above my house. My sisters were telling me in North Dakota, like Iowa, we have a lot of tornadoes. And so we'd always be worried about funnel clouds, but I never really saw a funnel cloud. And my sisters were telling me, there's a funnel cloud. And I'm like, I'm looking, I see some low-hanging clouds. I'm like, that's nothing. It's just low-hanging clouds. They're like, look higher. I'm like, I don't see anything. They look higher. And immediately above our house, all of these clouds are swirling. And it looked like something from a Roland Emmerich movie. And I'm like, for the first time in my life, the only time in my life, I have been frozen in fear. Now, I wasn't afraid the tornado was going to rob me or going to like damage my credit score. I just respected the awesomeness of what was above me. Habakkuk has a vision that makes that look like small potatoes, makes that look very small. When we talk about the fear of the God, it's a respect of the awesomeness of our God, the one who can, after destroying the body, throw the body and soul into hell. I wasn't afraid that it would mug me or steal my car. I didn't even know if it would touch down, which it didn't somehow. But I knew I was in the presence of something powerful. And that's nothing compared to Habakkuk's vision of how powerful our God is. The king of Babylon will have his own revelation of God's power. The king of Babylon, the person that in chapter 2, God is talking about and all of these wicked things that he does and will do. He has, this, he, has a, he has an understanding of God's power like he never had before. There's this time where he boasts before the Lord and God strikes him with madness. And he goes around naked and raving, acting, eating acting like an animal, eating the grass. And what's funny, I think I've told this before, in like Babylonian record keeping, there is a, there is a period of time that's just blank. And that's, that's the same period of time that, that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was going around crazy. So I can't imagine what that's like when they had like dignitaries visiting. And they're like, who's that madman out there? It's like, it's our king. What can we say? This is what he says when he comes to his senses. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Sometimes I'll see people, Twitter, Facebook, or whatever, even on TV, and they try to say to God, what have you done? But in the final verse of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, verses, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. There's a certain part where our arrogance, God just tells us, you don't understand and you're not going to understand, so you just need to be quiet. You need to just trust. Habakkuk's vision is even more spectacular. Not even creation itself can stand before him. He is brighter than the sun, verse 4. Pestilence and plague spring up around in his judgment, verse 5. He measures the earth, he scatters the mountains, he sinks low the hills, and he shatters the nations. That's verse 6. In Israel's history, God punishes mighty nations as though they were nothing before him. His wrath was so great that it seemed like his wrath was against the earth itself. Selah. In verses 10 through 13, the prophet remembers back, hearkens back to what God has done for Israel. When God shows himself mighty, he splits the seas. Oh, he opens them up so that his children can walk on dry ground. He then sweeps them back up and drowns their pursuers. When the army needed more time to gain victory, he made the sun stand still. Habakkuk mentions that it was not just the sun, but the moon itself stood still. This is how amazing is our God. I remember um, Newton. Newton came up with... uh, came up with the uh, um, certain universal laws. And uh, one of them, excuse me, suggested how the earth rotated around the sun. And for this, he was made to recant. And the reason why, the uh, queen herself actually spoke with Isaac Newton about this. And she said, how in Joshua can it say the sun stood still if the sun, if the sun doesn't move, but the earth spins around it? And I remember in college, um, that was brought forth, and I, I mentioned, I was like, well, she's wrong too because the sun actually does move. It just moves a lot slower. Um, everything moves. So you know what God had to do to make the sun and the moon stand still? All motion in all the universe had to stop so that his people could win the victory. And sometimes we think, oh man, this world is so evil. There's no going back. What are we going to do? God makes the, earth, the universe stand still. So that his people, so his children have the victory. Whoa. How do you, how do you, how do you even go from there? Um, how amazing is his very nature? How um, he stops all motion in the universe for a battle. All of these miracles are for what? Habakkuk says this: You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He says. This, even though he knows Judah, his country, will not stand this time. God is still faithful, however. God's promises are still yes and amen, but they are not according to our whims. Let me say that again. His promises are yes and amen, but they are not according to our whims because he is not the genie. There's a very popular church. One of their pastors said probably one of the most blasphemous statements I could have, I've ever heard that grieved the Spirit of God. And it was this, she was saying how the Holy Spirit was mischievous and he was blue. I'm like, lady, that's the genie from Aladdin. Don't call the Holy Spirit that. It's not funny, it's not cute, it's blasphemy. And it grieves the very spirit of God. We need to have a holiness, we need to have a reverence for God. 
in verse 14 through 16. In verse 14 through 16, the prophet reveals his response to this and where his praise or his joy comes from. It's very much like my prayer nearly every Sunday before I get up and proclaim to you the wonders of our God. To say, thus saith the Lord. This is my prayer before I come up. God, don't let me forget to tremble. Because I know that I'll be judged for what I say right now. I know that I will give an account. I know that on that day, he will ask me what I've been feeding his sheep. And I better have a good answer. It better not be flaming hot Cheetos. The sheep like it. I just give them ice cream every, every week. Sheep will get what, give you what you feed them. We're at this last Wednesday, we we're looking up um, when Peter is restored to his, to his ministry by Christ. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And three times when Peter says, I love you, he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. It's different words for lambs. It's different words for feed. And it's different words for love. You should look into it sometime. I'm not going to go through it right now. But when it comes to feeding, it is taking the cattle out to the pasture for letting them graze on grass. And one of the words for feeding is what you feed them as well, what you bring to them, the feed that you give them. And a wicked shepherd would give the sheep food that maybe it likes, but it would cause them great distress. I mean, I think of, I think of my two cats. I don't know how like this is to shepherding or not, um, I, I, you know, herding cats. But I think of my cat, Buddy will eat anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything. I've seen him try to eat the carpet before. I'm like, what are you doing, cat? I can give Buddy anything, and Buddy will eat it. I can give him ice cream, and he'll be happy until he has horrendously bad, I mean, he'll, he'll end up dying if I did that. And I'd be a very wicked owner to do that to him. My cat bear, on the other hand, pretty, assumes that everything I give him is poison until otherwise um, proven. <laughs> but I think of that as, pa- as a pastor, that I will be responsible. So I ask God, do not let me forget to tremble this morning as I present to the, your people your word and as I feed your people spiritual food because I am responsible for that. The prophet says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. You are the friend, you are the brother and sister of Jesus Christ, but remember, he is still king. And don't forget to tremble. Don't treat the Holy Spirit as unholy and therefore grieve him. That was all my introduction. Like last week, I'm doing three verses from the body of my sermon. But we had to get to that point. We have to get to a point of trembling before we take in the next three verses. It's an unshakable praise. Much like last week, the body of my sermon is only a couple verses. But unlike last week, we are going in order. To fully appreciate the last three verses, we need to be in a position of awe, a position of fear, and a position of trembling. Let's learn how to have an unshakable praise how to praise God in any and every circumstance. One, it's acceptance. Two, it's adoration. And three, it's where our source is. This, this story is told of Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if it's true. I'll tell you this much in James, um, James Montgomery Boyce commentary. He mentions this. A lot of people mention this story, but I didn't find an original source. So hopefully, I, I pray it is true. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, as you know, was sent as an envoy to the uh, French government to try to get them involved in the Revolutionary War. Um, 
So much of France during that time had a very anti-Christian bent, anti-Bible, anti-anything. And Benjamin Franklin, even though he was a deist and not a Christian, he had a deep respect for the Bible in which he was made fun of for that. So Benjamin Franklin, the very intelligent person he was, he's like, he, he goes to some of his friends who had mocked him for believing, the, not for believing the Bible, but for appreciating the Bible. And he read for them verses 17 to the end of the chapter, but he didn't tell them what it was. He said, I've got this great poem I heard. I mean, it's really stirring. Let me read it for you. And he reads it to them. Though the tr fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the, in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He's like, what do you think? And like, that's fantastic. That's so good. Where did you get this? He's like, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 19, 19, uh, 17 through 19, you can find it in the Bible. Um, they called it a magnificent poem. My first, my first point here, verse 17, it's acceptance. Acceptance. The Kubler-Ross model, more commonly known as the five stages of grief, details the five emotional journeys you go through when you are grieving. They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. This has come under much criticism. I don't know whether or not that's the only five stages or they're all out of order or whatever, but I know this. The path to joy is different because it starts with acceptance. It does not shy away. It can take the full weight of living in a depraved world but still have joy. It puts your joy out of the reach of your enemies. It doesn't end with acceptance. It starts with acceptance. I wrote an article in the paper some time ago, and I labeled it, The Grass Will Be Green Again. In it, I merely echoed the scriptures that tell us that sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes with the morning. Even when we're going through really difficult times, we can have trust that the grass will be green again. We will have Joy, again, for joy is not something that can be stripped away. It starts with acceptance. Habakkuk does what the Psalms do, what the book of Lamentations does, and recognizes the reality of the situation, and it doesn't sugarcoat it. Verse 17 goes even further as he speculates about the worst. The worst can happen, but it will not touch his joy. What do we do when God says no? So many people are so angry about God, about promises he never made. Some people believe that God has promised to heal everything here on this side of eternity. What do you do when he doesn't heal? Where does your faith go? Do you think, well, maybe I just didn't have enough faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed can move a mountain. It's not about faith. It's about trust. What do you say? What do you do when God, when God says no? So many people are angry with God for promises he never made. They will pray with rage. They will show their disdain for him when talking with others and, and make the claim that God isn't answering their prayers. Some people, some of their prayers will go directly against God's, against God's will. I remember somebody speaking with me that they had been praying that they would lose the child they had because the child was conceived under 
in correct circumstances. And I told him, God's not going to murder that child because you did something wrong. And they were so angry, like tears in their eyes, gritting their teeth. Could it be that the answer is no? That it is a response, that that is also a response, that is an answer is no? We want God to be our genie, and when he refuses, that's hard to take. Habakkuk, in his second complaint, is asking God about his own country. In his prayer, he is pleading for God to show mercy with judgment. But when it comes right down to it, if the answer is still no, Habakkuk will still praise him. He believes that God's proper place is on his throne. Let all the earth be silent. In verse 17, this is a picture of total destruction. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive field of olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is, I know all of you understand this probably better than I do because you're much more in tune when it comes to farming than I am. You know, it's funny, people preach this across the nation. They have to explain, like, food doesn't come from the supermarket. It doesn't just get made out of thin air. People have to work hard to bring in a harvest. Can you imagine? Year after year, no harvest, no period. Not one field, all fields, no harvest. There is no herd in the stalls. Over in North Dakota right now, they are fighting so hard to save the life of these calves because it's calving calving season and blizzard after blizzard. And I saw one of my friends who's a rancher over there, and this is what I thought was awesome, though. He was losing so many cattle, and some of you people who know what that's like, know how hard that is. I have a new appreciation for that. And his eyes were so tired. They interviewed him on the news. His eyes were so tired. But he had a joy, and he praised God. He was thanking the Lord, his Savior, even in the middle of losing that. This is a picture of total destruction. Even if you, once again, even if you're not a farmer, you understand that what Habakkuk is saying that even if my worst fears are realized, I will rejoice, I will take joy. I don't know if you've been there where Habakkuk is at, where everything you fear may happen. In fact, Habakkuk's fear would happen. I will assume, though, that everybody here has probably been there. And if you haven't been there, I don't care where you're at today, one day you will be there. And you will have a choice, like Habakkuk has a choice. And you'll have to, and you'll have to either respond like Habakkuk or like many others. Like Habakkuk, Habakkuk's response is, yet I will praise him. Yet I will rejoice. This changes you. I remember when I was here, and it was the most sweetest life-giving time of worship. Outwardly, I didn't believe I had anything to praise God for. I was bitter. I was angry. But when I did it anyway, you know what happened? Is when I choose, chose to pray, to rejoice, to take joy, only in the God of my salvation, it changed my very heart. This is one of the greatest witnesses to our world. It is not how we live in luxury, but how we bear up under suffering. That is the, that is the witness to this world. Early Christians, when they were being persecuted so bad, leaders, their leaders, their bishops, they would write to the Roman government and they would say, look at us. We are the heroes that you revere. We are Hector. We are Hercules. We are all these people because when we suffer, we suffer strong. We do not give up. We do not say we will pinch the, the, the amount of incense to Caesar. And it made a big change. Actually, eventually, Rome goes the exact other way on, on all of it. 
The way we bear up under suffering says so much more than how we live during luxury, our, our, having, our, having hope during luxury. The world knows this, and that is why the world, when they see a Christian struggling, they want to put a camera on them. I, I, was, so, I was so discouraged in spirit when, during the recession, 2008, I was living in um, Chicago, and everybody had a hard time, especially in Chicago. Um, and um, I remember I was watching Oprah. Now, don't judge me. I was working, and uh, I didn't get there before everybody else. The ladies got in there before me, and they were watching Oprah. I always loved the, the, the days when, like, some of the Latina staff was there because they would turn on the Spanish soap operas. And heaven help you if you change the channel when they're watching one of those. And compared to Oprah, though, I mean, I'm much more interested in what the general is about to do than uh, what was going on in Oprah. But anyway, Oprah was playing, and she had on there uh, a pastor and his wife. They, uh, they had put their, excuse me, um, they had put their um, retirement savings in stocks. 2008, you remember, stocks went down. If they had waited two years, they would have recouped everything, but they didn't know that. They just assumed what was me. And um, I remember them weeping on Oprah. And they're like, we did everything right. We were honoring God. And look how this happens. And I'm just like, I get where you're at. And I would love to pray with you. But don't show this for the pagans. You're saying that your God is insufficient to meet your needs. How dare you? How dare you do this? That's not a witness for the world. That sees the world that your faith is no more, no more powerful than mine. You despair when things are going bad. I despair when things are going bad. But when a Christian bears up under extreme suffering, when they have a yet I will attitude, it makes a difference. Psalm 63.3 is one of the, one of, uh, such a beautiful verse in the scriptures. And it hits differently depending on the stage of life you're in. Psalm 63.3 says this, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Verse 18, adoration, adoration. It's about the giver and not just the gifts. When we put the gift in front of the giver, we commit idolatry. When we put the blessing in front of the blesser, we have tried to make an engraved image. When we put the work of the Lord before the Lord of the work, we find ourselves worshiping other gods. All things, all things are, are a all things that are blessings have one purpose, and that is to make you love Jesus more. Let me say that again. Everything in your life, all of it, it has one central purpose, and it is make you love Jesus more. And if it doesn't, it's been perverted. If it doesn't, it's been corrupted by sin. Everything in your life, every blessing in your life is to make you love Jesus more. Verse 18, we have this repetition here. Yet, he says, yet he will rejoice in the Lord, take joy in the God of his salvation. Repetition is found so many times in the Bible. You might wonder, I mean, it's like, why? I, I forget. That's right, and so do you. We all forget. We often forget. We need to be reminded time and time again. You ever wonder why we have four Gospels and not just one? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just have one guy write everything he wanted in one Gospel, and that's what we had? Because we need to be reminded. In the Gospels, it's four times. Why not just one? Well, one, um, they, don't, they, have different, they have different info in them, but also the second part of it is that we need to be reminded. He calls him the God of his salvation. What does the prophet mean by the God of his salvation? I thought Judah is still going to be destroyed. It is. 
God's salvation, even here, is not, is not realized just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual one as well. Habakkuk has learned that God has already saved him. He doesn't understand how, only that his Savior will come, a messenger, a redeemer, an anointed one will come. But that one has been, but that one, he's not been just slain 600 years from this moment, but he was slain before the foundations of the world. And people in the Old Testament are saved by faith like in the New Testament. For Christ's sacrifice, it's retroactive. Adoration. I labeled this, this uh, point here in verse 18, adoration, because I was looking for a word that meant loving someone, worshiping our God, not for what they do, but for who they are. Adoration is about the closest, and it starts with an A. And then my next point, I just abandon the whole A thing and go to source. Do you adore Christ because what he does for you only or because of who he is? Habakkuk doesn't say, Habakkuk, um, Habakkuk doesn't. He says that if God never does anything for him, he still praises him. Anything else, even if God does not do anything else for him, he has a yet kind of faith. Do you have a yet kind of faith? Everything might come to ruin, yet I will praise him. Why? Because he's on the throne. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almary to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his, to his throne, his creation gnash their teeth, and we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do, to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his own creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the, in, in the matter." Then it is that we are, then it is in that we are hissed and extradited, and then it is that men turn to a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne, throne whom we trust. And that is a yet faith, that is, he is on his throne. Habakkuk still does not understand anything. He is not given, he's not given an answer to his prayer that says, yes, I'll spare Judah. He is not given an answer to his, he's given an answer to his prayer as far as Judah is filled with violence, but he still has this trust in God that to know God is greater than all things of this earth, of all physical blessings. The best blessing ever is to be in God's family. Alan Gardner was an English missionary in the 1800s. He strove to be a missionary. He had to raise an outrageous amount of funds for he was looking to preach the gospel in an area that's never been preached to in Patagonia. He gets all of his support and on his journey there, his ship crashes and everybody aboard dies of starvation. Not a cheery story. Not a, man, God will come through you with you in the clutch. You would assume that somebody who had spent all of his life to be a missionary, never getting to the mission field, would be filled with bitterness. But his and his companions' journals are filled with the exact opposite. His journey, his journal paints an entirely different picture. He says in there, and I quote, Great and marvelous are the loving kindness of my gracious God. 
he has preserved me hitherto. And for four days, although without bodily food, without any feelings of hunger or thirst. September 5th, 1851. The physician with them, Dr. Richard Williams, wrote this in his. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I am happy beyond all expression and would not have changed situation with any man living, that heaven and love and Christ were in my heart. Because it's not about what God does, about who he is that gives us an unshakable praise. It puts our joy out of our enemy's reach. God is shaking his church today. We are living in a time when God is allowing his church to be, sh to be shook. People are not falling away as much as they are being revealed. I have no fear. I have no fear that the church of Jesus Christ will be extinct. None at all. Sometimes we look at the secularization of this world. We see how many people fall away once they go to college. And I've even heard people say, if we don't do something, the church will be extinct. Who do you think you are? Christ builds his church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Certainly not the gates of postmodern ideology. I have a trust that cannot be sh shaken by this world. Because my source is not in all the pageantry around um, churches and, and endeavors and strategies. My source is in Jesus Christ alone. That is where my peace is. That is where my joy is. And if I were to lose everything, my ministry, my life, my wife, my family, I have him. I have more than enough because he is my source. And Habakkuk had to deal with that in such a real way. He has an adoration for God for who he is. In verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. What is your source? Superman's source is the yellow sun. Cut him off from the yellow sun. He's weak as a kitten. Green, Latin, Green Lantern, he has a magic ring. Um, uh, Iron Man has an arc reactor. Where does your energy, where does your life come from? I spoiled this point last week. I know that, but it's fine. Um, that God will not let anything else be your source. And he will show you how it crushes under the expectation of it being your source. Even the good blessings of God in your life. If you make it your source, it's insufficient. I was spoiling this week's sermon last week, but it's hard not to. Habakkuk faced with the reality that his source couldn't be his country. People around the church are finding out that their source cannot be ministry. It cannot be Christian culture. It cannot be prosperity or anything else other than God himself. Even the best things, even the most blessed things cannot be our source. One of the most incorrect statements I ever read will be, God will never give you more than he can handle. This is one of the most untrue statements that is said, because Moses couldn't handle Pharaoh. David couldn't handle Goliath. Samson couldn't handle a thousand enemy soldiers. The disciples couldn't handle Jesus being crucified. Paul the apostle couldn't handle spending most of his life in prison. In fact, God's most constant trait, one of his most constant traits, is giving people more than they can handle. He just will never give you more than he can handle. That's why the prophet says, the Lord is my strength. Is he yours? Maybe that's why, maybe that's why so many people, for many of us, it's hard to handle even the most basic things. 
I think so often those small breath prayers, that if the only time you pray is right before something major, it is, it is revealed to be so pathetic and insufficient because you can't bypass relationship with God. Can I say that again? You cannot bypass relationship with God. There are no magic spells in Christianity. You know, we'll say, you know, remember, if we ask anything in Jesus' name, Jesus gives it to us. We need to have an understanding of what that means to pray, to invoke the name of someone else. In Jesus' time, soldiers would say in the name of Caesar, do this. What they meant by that is, I have a special relationship with Caesar, because I'm his soldier. I'm his representative. And we're told we're the representative of Christ, as though God was making his appeal through us. And they were doing something in line with the will of Caesar. And if they weren't, they would be executed if they invoked Caesar's name. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are praying because we have a special relationship as co-heirs with Christ. We are praying because as we understand God's word, we are praying according to the, to the will of God himself. That is praying in Jesus' name. It's not a magic spell. It comes from relationship. And thirdly, it is though he was there with us. When somebody said in the name of Caesar, you should be afraid because it's though Caesar is here with us. When I pray in the name of Jesus, it's because his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is with me right here, right now. It's such a glorious thing. God will never give you more than you can handle. He gives you stuff all the time. You can't live a godly life even without the Holy Spirit's intervention. You cannot even lift your head without God helping. He gives you more than you can handle all the time. He'll just never give you more than you than he can handle because he is your strength. He is your source. He lifts us up to where we belong. So when the Lord saved me, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home um, or, or one that where we constantly listen to praise music or worship music. I often say I was raised by MTV and kind of true. Um, so when, I, when the Lord first saved me, I just had this heart where I just, I just wanted more of God. So everything I would change, like the lyrics, I'd hear a song in, in choir or something, I would change the lyrics. So it was a praise and worship song. I don't know if you do that or not, but I, I, I do that. And um, I still kind of do that. Um, so I remember there was this one song, and actually I did think it was a praise and worship song because I didn't know any better. And it's a song, Love, Love Lifts Us Up Where We Belong. And I thought it was like by the Gaithers. If you've ever heard it, it kind of sounds like a Gaither song. Um, and I just, I just remember the lyrics of it, and I, it, just, it just fits so well with Habakkuk as well, so I, had to, I wanted to mention it. Um, Love lifts us up where we belong, where eagles cry on a mountain high. That's what the love of Christ does. It lifts us up where we belong. The prophet says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. You ever see a mountain goat jump up the, jump up the side of a hill? It's like it was born to do so. That's what Christ does for us. He makes, us, he makes our feet like the feet of the deer. And all the troubles of this world, we leap above them. That, that one song I was mentioning sounds like verse 19. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. Or like Isaiah speaking of those who wait upon the Lord, which the prophet said he would wait. And he has waited. And, the, and Isaiah the prophet says that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount upon wings like eagles. Wait for it. The prophet has waited for the Lord. And now he is riding on wings like an eagle. Nothing has changed on the outside, but everything has changed on the inside. No earthly happiness is so great it can compete with the joy of the Lord. Can I say that again? 
No earthly happiness is so great it can compete with the joy of the Lord. When we think about our desire for the Lord Jesus to come, Spurgeon actually is the one who, who mentioned this, I'm paraphrasing it. We often, especially in these circles, we're like, come Lord Jesus, come. We're ready for the rapture. Do you only feel that way when things are going bad? If that's the case, maybe there's something in your heart that just wants to escape and doesn't want Jesus. And God wants to reveal that, heal that, and bring you to where you need to be. In the best of times is also when we need to say, Jesus, come. In the best of times. We used to make this joke in, in college that, you know, it'd be really bad is like you get married and on your wedding night, right before, you know what I'm talking about, um, rapture happens. And I remember somebody, like, we were joking about this, and somebody's like, why would that be bad? You get to be with Jesus. Do you not truly believe the joys of the Lord compete with earthly joys? And it's like, thanks for making me feel real bad. <laughs> no, you're right. There's no earthly happiness that can compete with the joy of the Lord. It puts my joy out of the reach of my enemies. And there is no earthly sorrow that can eclipse the light of the joy that comes with who God is. I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but it's, it's in my mind because it's, it's so recent. But I remember when, when Phil Biddle was on death's door. And I've seen people die before, and Phil looked worse than a lot of people I've seen on their last breath. But this is what I remember, not just with Phil. Then I went to pray with the family, and we, even in the prayers, the prayers were, God, even if you don't, we still love you. There is no earthly sorrow that can eclipse the light of the joy that comes with knowing who God is. I'm so, I'm so blessed to be your pastor because I get to reveal this to you today. I get to remind you of the joy of the Lord. That though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce on the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. So even when things are going, can you imagine if China invaded today? I just saw a video of a country in which is actually Japan and when China invaded and what a hopeless situation that was. Everybody's starving to death to have joy in that moment. That is our legacy. That's our inheritance in Christ. It is the inheritance of fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not a small thing. It is the best thing. Worship team, would you come up at this point? So in chapter 3, in those last three verses, we see an acceptance that everything the prophet fears may come to pass what do we do when God says no, not now or other? We see the prophet choosing adoration. It is a choice. Do you love God because he gives you things or because of himself? Three, our source. When you are low, confused, frustrated, where do you run? You know, I mentioned this when I first, when God was first dealing with me, I still do. When God was dealing with me when it came to gluttony. And here was the problem I had with food, why it became an idol in my life. Because when I was sad, when I was confused, when I was angry, I didn't run to the Lord, I ran to Baskin Robbins. 
and I was really active and everything like that. I was, I, was, I was very overweight, obese and everything, but I was active, so I told myself, I don't deal with gluttony, but no, because I, my source of joy was that, and God would not allow that to be my joy. He had to show me I needed to run to Him instead of such empty wells. So it's my challenge for you today, is bring adoration into your prayer and worship. Don't only praise God for what He gives you. You should praise God for everything He gives you, He deserves praise for everything he gives you, every little tiny thing, every major monstrous thing, but also for who he is. Bring adoration into your prayer and worship. You will find a major difference in your heart, in your spirit, and in your soul. Two, make a practice of drawing from the well of living water. Make a practice of drawing from the well of living water. You know, in the Old Testament, There was one place only one person could go once a year. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was only the high priest who could go in there. And if he was found to be, if he was found to be unclean, ceremonially unclean in any way, it was believed he'd be struck dead. So they put bells on him. They put a rope around his, a rope around his uh, ankle and they would be able to drag him out if he was dead. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you and now you in any moment can go into the Holy of Holies. You can practice the presence of God in a crowd by yourself. In the middle of a storm, you can go into the Holy of Holies. Make a practice of drawing from the well of living water. Our worship team is going to lead us in our final song. During this time, in our time of praise and prayer, draw from that well of living water. Go into the Holy of Holies where you find mercy and grace. You can do so because there is one who has gone before you who is in the heavenlies, who makes intercession for you. Focus on your praise for God of adoration of who he is. I don't know what you're going through today. Maybe you're going through a very difficult time. Like I said before, Mother's Day can be a very difficult, difficult day for a lot of people. And bitterness can seep in if you let it. Or you can decide, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. We use the compound name of the Lord, Yahweh Rofe, God our healer. And that comes out of a reading of scripture in which God made the bitter water sweet. And God can take the bitterness in your life and make it sweet. Would you please join us in our final song?